Okay, it's great. It's great to be here and uh, to present uh, one of my uh, hobby horses is about systematic reviews. I appreciate you sort of nearing the end of your first week here, and you're probably a little bit tired. So uh, I'm going to have to tell you now that at the end of my 30-minute talk, I'm going to ask you to sort of spend a bit of time discussing what I've uh, uh, presented, and then to give me some feedback at the end of it. Because in part, the reason is that uh, Carl, myself, and Jeremy Howick are, are writing a paper around why we think the current system of systematic view production is wrong. And we've jotted out some thoughts, actually we spent a fair bit of time on it, and in a way you're the guinea pigs to our ideas. And so we want you to point out all the obvious errors we've made uh, before we go to print. But also we think it will be challenging uh, to a lot of the things that are currently thought about systematic reviews. A bit of background to my, myself. I'm a scientist by background. I've uh, worked in what was clinical effectiveness in the mid-1990s. That's my start. And from there, I moved to South Wales, where I was told to make the GPs more clinically effective. Uh, so I went and spoke to the, the, the GPs, and they said, we don't want to learn searching skills. We don't want to learn critical appraisal skills. We haven't got time just to answer our questions. And so that's what I tried to do using this is pre-Google days and when Medline was on CDs all separate, all stacked on. And it was, I basically taught myself to answer clinical questions. And as I was answering these clinical questions, it uh, dawned on me it would be so much easier if we could search all these resources of high quality evidence from one place. And that's how I started the TRIP database. And that's grown ever since. I'm not going to talk specifically about the TRIP database. If you want to ask me any questions about it, you can do after this. Uh, but a lot of my thinking has, and a lot of the development of the TRIP database has come around from answering clinical questions for doctors and nurses. Uh, me and my various teams have run various services, have answered over 10,000 clinical questions, uh, mostly for primary care uh, doctors and nurses. And it was not too far away from here that I was having a conversation with Ian Chalmers, who obviously created the Cochrane Collaboration, and uh, we've got a great relationship now. But, uh, <laughs> I just said to him, I, I struggle when I'm answering questions for uh, GPs. I struggle with the notion, on one hand, I'm hearing Cochrane's great, systematic views are great, and on the other hand, they don't answer many questions. That was my experience. We did an audit, and less than 1% of the questions we received could be answered by a single uh, systematic review. I was saying, what are they for? Surely they're meant to be useful. And that was, my, that was a starting point for my scepticism about systematic reviews. And now we, here we are, sort of, should I think how long it was, about eight years ago. And it's just, I had that conversation with Ian. And uh, you know, I think he's developed, and more and more information is coming out about what I think are the flaws of systematic views. And I'm sure you've always been told systematic views are great, uh, and they can be. But I just think a lot of the flaws are hidden. You've invariably heard of Archie Cochrane. Uh, and in 1979, he complained that uh, medicine had not yet managed to produce a critical summary by speciality or subspeciality, adapted periodically of all relevant randomised control trials. He felt it was important at the time, and I think most people still think it's important. And irrespective of my cynicism of the current methods, I still think systematic reviews are an important tool. But we're nowhere near that. We're nowhere near uh, synthesising all randomised control trials, and many of them are just floating about with, with uh, 
with, with no attempt at synthesizing them because the cost per systematic review is huge. I don't know, has anyone actually tried to do a systematic review here? Anyone find it easy? No. The data I could find is each systematic review takes approximately uh, 1,100 person hours. And if you look at a Cochrane review, it typically takes 23 months from registration to publication. And there's obviously a bit of work got to go in for uh, before it's uh, registered. So we're looking at well over two years for a systematic review from uh, idea to, uh, to publication. And as a result of this work, most of the people I've spoken to, and it, feel free to contradict me, those who have done a systematic review, most people who do a systematic review don't come up don't come out of it thinking, oh, I'd love to update it. I can't wait to start again and update it again. Because most people I know seem to look at the thought of updating their systematic review of horror. It's not easy. I've not done one, but I, <laughs> I see enough people near the end of their systematic reviews who are horrified by the work that's needed to, to do it and to do it properly. And so most systematic reviews aren't kept up to date. And... Well, I'll show you later on the slide, but about two-thirds of Cochrane systematic views are currently out of date, which is a huge number. I've spoken to Paul Glasiew, who was Carl's predecessor here, and they've, a quote from him, they've, the methodologist, raised the methods and process barriers so high that most are not being updated. I often view this as the methodologists are running amok, and they're trying to squeeze out every single little bit of bias, but with no reference to the cost in, in producing the systematic view. I, I feel that they are producing Ferraris where most people will be happy with a Golf or a Mini. And this is uh, a slide. This is from I might be I might be seen to be slagging off Cochrane. That, that's I'm not. I'm just using Cochrane's information because they are transparent, a lot more transparent than most other systematic view producers. And so they're being picked on in a way because they're transparent. So I'm seeing it as a, very, a huge positive. And uh, Ian Chalmers is always very happy for criticism of Cochrane because he set up a prize for actual overt criticism of Cochrane. So uh, they're big enough, they can take it. But this is taken uh, from uh, the Cochrane Library and Oversight Committee and the Annual Report and Financial Statements. What we've got here is the funding, the income of Cochrane. And as you can see, it's gone up and there was a significant increase in 2008-2009. That's probably when they started working with Wiley. Don't know, but that's my assumption. And this line here is a number of systematic reviews in the Cochrane Library that are actually up to date. So in 2009, it was 39.8, and it's in last time they published information, it was down to 35.8. So the problem's getting worse, not better. That's my reading of it. I have read that correctly, by the way. I was I was always surprised. I had to keep rereading it. Is that out of date or up to date? That's actually 35.8 is up to date for clarity. So nearly two-thirds are out of date. And I think one of the biggest problems with Cochrane and the Cochrane Star systematic views is they rely on published trials. There's a paper uh, fairly recently by Schroll, Barrow and Goetze, a bit of a rubbish reference but you should be able to find it from there if you've done your searching skills. And the problem, and basically that paper highlighted that the vast majority of Cochrane systematic views rely on, on published trials and when they try and look at unpublished trials uh, it's a very unsystematic way of going about it. And I'll talk more about the difference between published and unpublished trials. I don't know if you've done that yet. But there's lots of reasons we're relying on, public, on, on published journal articles only. Uh, and two clear ones are reporting bias and publication bias. Have you done biases yet? There's some weak nods and there's very few enthusiastic, hearty nods. But anyway, 
reporting bias, when you rely on published trials, <coughs> I'll, I'll get the explanation out, out of the way now. What you typically have when you have a trial is you have a huge amount of data. This data is then uh, typically summarised into something called a clinical study report. <coughs> have people heard of clinical study reports? Clinical study reports are hundreds of pages of long, long. They're massive documents, they are typically unstructured and they're a nightmare to work with. And what happens is you have your clinical study report and then someone who wants to get a publication will write that, will summarise those 200, 300 pages into 8 to 10 sides of A4 and that is the journal article and then obviously the journal article is summarised to the abstract. Now most people would say, oh, it's, you shouldn't do a systematic review on an abstract and I'm certainly not proposing that. And the reasons would probably be because you're missing big chunks of data if you just rely on the abstract. It's the same argument I see as relying on journal articles compared with uh, clinical study reports. Clinical study reports is, is, uh, is summarised and loses about 80% of the data. And so if it's not acceptable to use an abstract to do a systematic review, I sometimes wonder why is it acceptable to do a, a, a systematic review based on published journal articles because you're still missing shed loads of data. It's a pragmatic decision and there was a recent paper that Carl was involved with and uh, Tom Jefferson and pointer, risk of bias, basically it was looking at risk of bias of industry funded trials and what they did they compared the core reports of journal articles with the full clinical study reports and what they found was I may as well read it out. We found that as information increased in the document, this increased our assessment of bias. This may mean that risk of bias has been insufficiently assessed in Cochrane reviews based on journal publications. And that, to me, is not trivial. Now we get publication bias. 30, if, if, are you all familiar with the All Trials initiative? You know, they report that 30 to 50% of all clinical trials aren't published. And here's a good, a good time to introduce it, looking at the Turner paper is when a pharma company wants to uh, get a drug approved, it needs to show the FDA in America uh, all the trials that, it, that it's done, looking at the efficacy, the side effects associated with a particular drug. They have to register them before they start the trials for them to be accepted, but there's no obligation for them to actually publish the trials. They've got to show them to the FDA, sure, but they don't have to publish them in journal articles. And Turner looked at uh, Turner et al. looked at the selective publication of antidepressant trials and its influence on apparent efficacy. And what they did, they went to the FDA, and with, it's not easy working with the FDA or the AMA and the European Medicines Agency. But eventually, they they looked at all the trials that had been registered with the FDA, and they compared that to those that had been published uh, in journal articles. And what they found of of all the studies that were in favour or showed uh, that the, the antidepressants were working, 37 versus 1 were published versus unpublished. And then of, a, of those that were found to be negative, i.e. didn't support the use of antidepressants, only 3 were published and 33 were unpublished. So if you do a systematic review on uh, published trials, you'll find 37 in favour and three against. Is that fair? Is that reasonable? And I think Turner pointed out the madness of this. And what, what Turner did was they looked at what would the, the effect be of including the, the uh, FDA trial data, the regulatory data, versus the, uh, 
the meta-analysis done on, on published uh, journal articles, and they found if you just relied on the journal articles, there was a 32% increase in effect size. So, you know, this is not trivial. You might say this is an, this is an outlier. Certainly not. Good. <laughs> this was a paper by Hart in the BMJ, 2011. And what sh uh, she did was she looked at an awful lot more. Uh, basically the same principle comparing uh, meta-analyses done on, a, on published journal articles, comparing those with those that included regula regulatory data, such as by the FDA. And what I've done, I've, I've zeroed in, the, the zero line is the effect size as shown in the uh, meta-analysis based on published journal articles. And the, the horizontal bars are how wide the discrepancy was when you added in regulatory data. And so at the top one, it was out by over 150%. And down here, if I can get my pointer working, it's over 50% uh, reduction. And in over 50% of the case, or approximately 50% of the cases, the effect size estimate was out by greater than 10%. And what the biggest, <laughs> that's, that's, that's serious enough, but one of the things that was actually, I predicted before I'd actually read the article, that, well, it's anyone that involved pharma will always increase the effect size in favour of the drug, but they, they didn't find that. There was no pattern. So what makes it even worse is it's unpredictable. You cannot see, if you see a journal article, a, a meta-analysis based on journal articles, whether it's an underestimate or an overestimate. And the chances are it's going to be out by 15, 20%. And confidence intervals don't touch this. You know, you see your, your little diamond at the bottom, and you think, oh, that's a, that's a very narrow diamond, therefore it must be pretty certain. Doesn't, doesn't take into account the unpublished trials. Misleading. And so I think part of my concern with, with meta-analyses and systematic views used on published journal articles is that I didn't realise this, and I don't think many people realise this when they look at systematic reviews, is the effects and the harms of things such as uh, publication bias. But what's, <laughs> what's even more scary is the amount of trials that are and the amount of data, not just trials, that are coming our way. In 1976, there's about 1,000. This is all from Carl. This is Carl's data. Uh, so you can't criticise it. Uh, in 1976, there was about 1,000 trials per year uh, published. Uh, in 1994, 10,000. In 2007, 25,000. And by 2018, 19, it's estimated to be 50,000. And because of the success of the All Trials uh, initiative, more trials are being, they'll help contribute to the 50,000 because more trials will actually be published, but also there'll be much greater availability of data in the form of clinical study reports and individual patient data and things like that, uh, which is, is great that we've got the data, but my view is the current system can't cope, so why do we think uh, adding 10 times more data is going to make the system work any more efficiently? It's not, it's going to creak. And I think at the moment the current system is coping really badly. So my general view is when we add more data, it will break. I actually think it's broken now, but that's just me. And so we need a new system. I think, <laughs> oh, we could, we could pray that we're going to get a tenfold increase of funding. I think in the, in, that's unlikely, I would say. And so I think it would be a gross uh, misuse of funds to throw extra money at the current system. And that's actually how I approached Carl and, and Jeremy initially. I said it was, is it, it, I felt it was an ethical issue around the allocation of funds uh, 
to uh, should we be spending so much money doing systematic reviews, which are clearly problematic. Anyway, that's another point. But I think that if people continue to believe that the current systematic review system is great, nothing will change. And I think there's obviously organisations that are very keen on maintaining the status quo. And lots of people, not just organisations, make a lot of a nice career out of systematic reviews. And I suppose change is always difficult, I suppose I'm saying, because you always have the status quo, we'll try and maintain the situation. Uh, and what the new system needs to be is both quick and robust. And we can see no way of reconciling that unless you have two systems. One is quick and one is robust. The quick system will be brief and it will be very, very short. We'll use shortened search. Basically, we'll take the systematic review method and we'll, wrap, we'll significantly decrease the amount of the cost at each stage. Expedited search, uh, simple quality assessment, and uh, the view is that we could produce, a f and this is aimed very much at supporting clinical practice, uh, and that we will produce very short, brief reports. If you look at the, the very first Cochrane systematic reviews, they were quite small documents. I think they're about 14 pages long, and that was with including all the references. And now, I can never count all the pages. I'm always, it's always about, well, well over 200 pages by the time we scroll through it all. And they would highlight key outcomes, and they would highlight likely effect sizes. And they would be easily updated. And there's various things that we are, uh, that are in the pipeline around updating systematic reviews and things like that, none of which have come online yet. But I think there's a, there's a if, we can, well, if we can rapidly re produce, reduce, sorry, if we can significantly reduce the cost per rapid systematic review, we can do an awful lot more, and therefore we can incorporate all randomized control trials in that way. The systematic, the, the work I've been doing in Public Health Wales, we did two very quick methods of sort of rapid reviews. What we did, we blinded one of member of staff, not literally, and we uh, gave them 10 questions based on uh, Cochrane systematic reviews, and we got them to answer it using this uh, technique that, that took uh, four hours. And 85%, so 85% of the time is it was, there was, we got it the same as, as Cochrane had got. The half is there, the 5% was there because it was ambiguous, we weren't quite sure. But well, there's another technique that we do on the TRIP database which can do rapid reviews in, in about five minutes. And again, that got 85% agreement with Cochrane. But that's just my, my non-scientific way of doing it. What I normally do things is just in the office and just mucking around. But this, the rapid reviews, and there's, there's huge, one of the problems with rapid reviews is no standard methodology. And people get concerned by that. But there's been three papers recently which have looked at reducing the time taken to do uh, systematic reviews. Hemmons and uh, Hemmons, he works with Brian Haynes, who you may well have heard of at McMaster. They do a, a wonderful service called Evidence Updates, which if you're not familiar with, you should be. Uh, Evidence Updates is a great system. That it's, uh, they look at 120 of the top journals uh, and they do an internal critical appraisal stage and those that fail the critical appraisal are dumped from the system and those that they feel are of suitable quality to inform uh, clinical care are then passed on to a network of clinicians. So if it's a cardiology paper, it is sent off to at least four cardiologists. It might be three, I think it's four. And the cardiologists rate it on, is it newsworthy or if it's relevant to clinical practice? And they have to get a certain threshold before they're accepted. 
those two stage processes kick out 96% of the papers in uh, from the top, the top 120 journals. So they get rid of loads of stuff which is just not pertinent to a clinical practice or newsworthy or, or done properly. But using that, uh, as it says here, when they updated using the, their techniques, using the evidence updates, they used less than a quarter of the new studies found in the Cochrane update and they said that most reviews appeared unaffected by the omission of these studies. Uh, later, now, any Italians here before I absolutely murder the pronunciation of this? Sagliocca. Anyone? No one can contradict me. I should have a bit more flair and sounded a bit more confident. It would have won there. Uh, what they did, if the systematic review was on a cardiology topic, they would take the top journals in cardiology and just use those to update the systematic review. And so that's a different way of sampling the randomized controlled trials. And they found, they found uh, able to replicate almost all the clinical recommendations of a formal systematic review. Again, little difference. And then there was a great paper recently, uh, Van Enst, and they just did the meta-analysis based on Medline. And again, restricting the studies index on Medline did not influence the summary estimates of meta-analysis in our sample. So there's three separate ways of looking at of trying to sample the number of trials, and none of them seem to affect the outcomes of the systematic review. The, what I would say to that is it's very bold to make, but I think more research needs to, be needs to be undertaken to fully appreciate when you can get away with that and when you can't. But I think if you talk to Tom Jefferson, who is, I would say, more cynical than me, he would say that he mirrors what Richard Smith, has anyone seen what Richard Smith says about published uh, journals? He says they're the publishing arm of pharma. He says they're a marketing tool for the pharmaceutical industry. And his view is, when I've discussed it with him, well, if you sample the marketing message from pharma, if you take 10%, you take 80%, you're still taking a sample of the marketing message, so you're still going to report the marketing message that they want to see. That was his cynical view. So, to my mind, there is probably, we can probably do an awful lot to get very close to where Cochrane are doing, and I appreciate the, the sort of fallacy that I've been saying, well, Cochrane, you know, Cochrane-style systematic views are, are flawed, so we're getting close to a flawed system. But my view is, well, let's, if we're going to get to a, an approximate, I call it a ballpark figure, let's take two weeks doing it, or one week doing it, as opposed to 23 months. But in some situations, there's a, an acknowledgement that uh, we need a more robust system. And those of, has Carl spoken to you about his the, the, the work he did with Tom Jefferson on the Tamiflu systematic review. Yeah, but, it, but essentially that was a huge amount of work, much more than doing a standard systematic review. So those of you who did a, 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 have done systematic reviews, that, that was just a walk in the park relative to what I, I remember coming here last year and presenting and then Carl and, and, and Tom were going off to look at clinical study reports for the rest of the evening, which I thought was very romantic. Microphone's on. Uh, but essentially, to move up, I've, I've already ex said the huge cost in doing a systematic review, but in some situations, a systematic review needs to be more robust than the co current Cochrane uh, technique. So that requires essentially the authorization of a large amount of cost. And so it needs to be, there needs to be a very good reason for saying, yes, let's spend even more resource on uh, looking at this question. 
And you know, there's various things we can use. I don't know if you've, if you've had a look through systematic reviews, but often the outcomes will be bizarre. Often the topics will seem equally bizarre. And my favorite one is music therapy for ingrowing toenails, which I think I've actually made up, but some people don't know. And I'm, I'm getting confused, but I'm sure there's probably a protocol for that somewhere. But often you will get a feel from doing a rapid review about whether the outcomes are actually relevant to patients. You, you know, I'm sure you're aware of lots of studies where the outcomes are bizarre. I, I saw one the other day for e-cigarettes, and it's, it was deemed a success if it stopped someone craving a real cigarette for more than 15 minutes. I don't know, I don't know that just struck me as being a bit strange. Uh, but are the outcomes that are being reported in the, in the research, are they useful to anyone? Does anyone care? Is the likely effect size uh, clinically important? Because lots of studies will find very marginal benefits, which are probably not going to have a huge impact on clinical care. And is there a significant clinical or economic uh, reason for doing it? And the Tamiflu is a, is a great example. But what we believe, before, and I'll talk about the Tamiflu a little bit more, uh, but what we think is it, it should be the patients and it should be the clinicians who make the decision. They should be the ones saying, are these outcomes relevant? In the patient's case, are these relevant to me? Are they relevant to my care? And the clinician can make judgments as well. Similarly, are the outcomes useful? Are the clinically important effect sizes? And if you ever get the chance to see Tom Jefferson talk about Tamiflu, go and see it. He's a brilliant speaker. Uh, he's in the army, and I think that gives him a certain presence. He was in the army. I don't know if he still is. No, he's, he's, he's in Italy, but uh, as a doctor there. But he was in the army, and you can tell, I think. Very, very commands the room. And when they did the first uh, Tamiflu uh, <coughs> review, Tom got asked a question saying, in your, in your systematic review, uh, you relied on a, a, a meta-analysis, on a previous meta-analysis, which is using unpublished trials. How can you trust it? And Tom went and scratched his head and said, <coughs> I can't. And over the course of the process of him wrestling with that concern, they came up with, they basically ripped up the Cochrane Handbook. And they do not, although it's published within the Cochrane, over, you know, it's a Cochrane systematic view, they haven't used the standard Cochrane methodology. And they've avoided all journal articles. They didn't touch journal articles when they did the systematic review. They just relied on the clinical study reports. And they had to do a huge amount of work to identify those clinical study reports. And they still keep springing up. And I think it is, yeah, it, this has just been a phenomenal amount of work, as I say, much more than the standard systematic review methods. So you can't just do it willy-nilly. You can't just say, oh, I want to do this systematic review, which is going to take a huge amount of cost, because it's just not feasible. So they've got to be reserved for the special cases where it's really important. In the case of the Tamiflu, uh, the first uh, Cochrane review was a lot less negative than the subsequent ones. And it came out about the same time as the government spent £500 million on Tamiflu, which is, as far as I can tell, not much better than paracetamol, I think is the, is the quote. And so there's a strong economic case if the government's thinking of spending £500 million on a, an intervention. Well, should we make sure that it's actually worthwhile? I think that's sort of fairly a good, a good example of when a system like this would work. Uh, and it would use all the data that's available, and it would spend the time trawling through all the regulatory data, knowing what a nightmare that is. But again, the All Trials Network have been great in getting the European Medicines Agency to be a little more flexible. There is an agreement to publish all clinical... Well, 
I don't know if it's been ratified yet, but the general view is I'll publish all clinical study reports with a bit redacted for commercially sensitive stuff uh, from next year, possibly, although they're still keeping hold of the clinical study reports that have been prior to, prior to well, 2014. And this, these style reviews will be the proper gold standard. Not, I use that because I think most people view systematic reviews, and especially the Cochrane ones, as being the gold standard. And I think hopefully the evidence I've presented will make you slightly sceptical, which is always good. We're all scientists here. So in conclusion, I have no doubt that the current system is completely broken. It's, it's on its last legs. And so we need to move to a situation. And we're not saying this is, this is our suggested method, and you can discuss it amongst yourselves in a few minutes. But we think there's two, there's only t the, the way we can think of is you do a rapid review for all to incorporate all uh, trials in line with Archie's vision. Uh, and then there is a process that you decide, is it worthwhile? Are there good reasons why we feel we should spend more money in doing a much more robust review? But when you do a robust re review, you do a proper robust review, not one that's caught between two, uh, between two stools of, as I would characterise, Cochrane's reviews. That's all I wanted to say for that. But what I'm, what I'm now going to challenge you guys to do is to help uh, us perfect our paper. It probably needs a lot of work. And what we'd like you to do is answer sort of th these questions. Because I think my talk, well, I characterise it as being in two parts. One is rubbishing the current methods of doing systematic reviews. And the second one is in uh, the suggested new approach of doing a rapid and a more robust method where appropriate. That's how I characterise it. What I'd be interested to hear is, for the first one, were people surprised by... By, and you'll go into groups or talk to your neighbour about this. Did anything strike you as being particularly surprising? And did you feel I overstated anything? Was the emphasis wrong? Did I not emphasise it enough? Any of the criticisms? And so I'd want you to consider those. And also, with the suggested new approach, have we got it wrong? And I'm really thick-skinned. I really don't mind if you say, John, you talked a load of rubbish for the last 30 minutes. And let me go. I want to go and have my dinner. And also, is there anything, we, if you think it's broadly correct, is there any way we might improve uh, the way we position our reasoning? So what's the best way to do this? Is it, are people comfortable talking with their neighbours? And, and I'll give you sort of 10, 15 minutes, and I'll start asking you to sort of report back. Do you want to just, talk, do you want to just find the best way of talking with your neighbours? And... Uh,